0: The life of a professional musician is a tumultuous one. Rockstar biographies are full of stories about their lives on the road, waking up in a new city every day, their families left behind as they work their way towards superstardom. But not every band makes it to the top, and some need to make serious changes to even come close. The Beatles famously replaced their original drummer Pete Best with Ringo Starr when it became clear that Best wasn't a good fit. When singer Robert Lamb and his friends first formed their group in 1967, they called themselves The Big Thing, until they transformed themselves into Chicago Transit Authority the following year. One year after that, they shortened it down even more to the name they're known by today, Chicago. Change, as you see, is common for a band, and sometimes it can be the difference between obscurity and success. Roger and Nick knew that in England growing up during the 1940s and 50s. Roger was something of an athlete growing up, playing cricket and rugby for his high school teams, while Nick went to college to become an architect. They moved in together in 1963 and formed a rock band a year later with another pair of friends. They called the group Sigma Six. That was before they were named the Megadeths, the Screaming Abdads, Leonard's Lodgers, and the Spectrum Five. Finally, they settled on what they had hoped to be their final name, the T-Set. Roger played lead guitar with Nick on the drums. Their buddy Richard played rhythm guitar while two other members, Keith and Clive, sang and played bass respectively. Eventually, Keith and Clive split off to start their own band in 1963, leaving Roger, Nick, and Richard to find two replacements. Now, as the tea set, the group often rehearsed in a basement tea room at the college that Roger, Nick, and Richard attended. They would then go out at night and play various clubs and private engagements building up their repertoire of songs. Late 1964 saw the T-set join a local London hotspot called the Countdown Club in Residency. They would start playing late at night and go until dawn, rocking out over 90-minute long sets. They had a problem, though. Playing for such a long time meant that they had to repeat songs in each set. To avoid this problem, the guitarists began taking longer solos in each song, adding enough to buffer them to let them complete their sets without any repeats. Audiences liked it, and it helped solidify the T-set's sound as they worked their way up the club circuit. They started recording some of their tunes in a studio in West Hampstead, and getting more gigs. It was one performance in particular, though, that would change the fate of the group forever. It was a coincidence, really. They were set to play on the same ticket as another band calling themselves, of all things, the T-set. In a panic, vocalist and guitarist Roger sought inspiration in his record collection, specifically from some albums by a couple of prominent blues musicians. The first was an album by a guitar player named Pinkney Anderson, known as Pink, born in Lawrence, South Carolina in 1900. Anderson had come up playing at medicine shows, performing for crowds while snake oil salesmen pitched their questionable wares. The other album featured a blues guitarist named Floyd Council, who hailed from North Carolina, Council was a busker and specialized in playing the Piedmont Blues, which was big in the South. And Roger wasn't a stranger to nicknames. His full name was Roger Keith Barrett, but everyone knew him as Sid, and he took Pink Anderson's name and Floyd Council's name and put them together, changing the T set into something else entirely, the Pink Floyd sound. Later on, Barrett, Roger Waters, and Nick Mason, David Gilmore, and Richard White shortened their name to simply Pink Floyd and went on to make music history. They released 15 studio albums and 27 singles over the course of their career, entertaining audiences all over the world with their psychedelic and progressive brand of rock. And it's funny, even though several of the band's members met while attending architecture school, it was clear that, in the end, they would build a wall, and they didn't need no education to do it. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T to start living yours. Let's get into it. Celebrity deaths are always hard to take. When beloved actors, singers, and comedians pass away, it feels like losing a part of ourselves, too. We grew up with them, watching their movies or listening to their albums. Their work becomes an integral part of our lives, and so when they inevitably die, it's hard not to feel like the light of the world is just a little bit dimmer. But scientists and doctors have been working on ways to reverse death, or at least postpone it. One of the most well-known concepts is called cryonics, a scientific field in which living tissue is preserved at extremely low temperatures. And we've all bumped into the concept before in countless sci-fi TV shows and movies, such as Futurama, Idiocracy, and Alien, where someone is placed into a deep, cold sleep and woken up decades later, or in the case of Alien, when a murderous space creature is loose on a ship. But yes, the idea of freezing and preserving a human body does sound like science fiction. However, it has been accomplished numerous times over the years as experts continue to research and develop the technology. For example, a 14-year-old girl in the UK who died of cancer several years ago petitioned the courts to allow her body to be cryopreserved until a cure could be found. In 2012, baseball legend Ted Williams had his head surgically removed post-mortem. It was stored separate from his body by a cryonics company in Arizona. And there was also Dick Clare, a television writer and producer who worked on programs like The Bob Newhart Show and The Facts of Life. Clare died in 1988 of complications from AIDS, but was cryonically preserved in Arizona, along with many others. But one celebrity death has been synonymous with cryonic preservation since his death in 1966. He was an entrepreneur, an animator, a business mogul, and an icon. He created what is arguably the most recognizable character in the world, And two of the most successful theme parks in history. Obviously, I'm talking about none other than Walt Disney, who succumbed to lung cancer at the age of 65. Of course, Walt Disney was a futurist who anticipated a time when homes ran automatically with robots handling things like vacuuming and mopping, not unlike the future we enjoy today. Some of the original Tomorrowland attractions at Disneyland were called things like the Monsanto Hall of Chemistry and the Bathroom of Tomorrow. Exhibits where visitors could see how companies were planning to advance our world, from the chemicals in our food to where we brush our teeth every morning. So it's no wonder that when Disney passed away in December of 1967, rumors quickly spread about what had happened with his body. Those rumors seemed to kick off in early 1967, just a few weeks after his death. You see, Disney had been being treated for his cancer at St. Joseph's Hospital in Burbank, California which sat right across the street from Walt Disney Studios. After he died, a reporter with the National Spotlight, a tabloid rag known for publishing salacious rumors, allegedly pulled off some entertainment espionage for a scoop. According to his report, the reporter had dressed up as an orderly and snuck into a storage room. There, preserved in a massive metal container, was the body of Walt Disney himself, waiting to be revived at a time when his disease could be cured. Over the years, the stories about Disney's cryonic corpse only grew. They even worked their way into several biographies about the late animator, painting him as a man desperate for a cure by any means necessary. And there is some truth to that notion. Disney was terrified of dying and often worried about his premature death, especially when he was depressed, although he kept many of his personal feelings close to the vest. According to one biographer, Walt had asked his older brother Roy not to let anyone know about his cancer. As for the circumstances surrounding his passing, those were kept secret from the public for hours after he had died, a fact that only added to the mystery of what doctors or scientists might have been doing with his body. Some people believe that Walt Disney is currently being stored beneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at his California park, waiting until he can be resurrected to live out his remaining years as the head of the company he co-founded. But the truth? he was cremated, as per his wishes. There's no cryonic chamber, nor a top-secret storage facility under Disneyland. Walt Disney created one of the most successful companies in history. That is his legacy. All that other stuff about his body being frozen in perpetuity? That's just a rumor, and one that needs to be put on ice. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.